everybody, welcome back to P3, the PFOS Pulse podcast, the companion podcast to HRP subscription service about all things PFOS. I am joined today by guests, Tom Darby, who is HRP's uh, practice leader for environmental, and Paul Newman from ECT2. Guys, can you introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, hey, I'm, I'm Tom Darby. Like Tom said, I'm an uh, environmental practice leader at HRP. Uh, today we're going to be talking about PFOS remediation. And I'm Paul Newman. I work for ECT2, which stands for Emerging Compounds Treatment Technology, and we're a company focused squarely on remediation of emerging contaminants such as PFOS, uh, 1,4-Dioxane, etc. So I'm very happy to be here today. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Matt Wallace. Hey guys, how you doing? Matthew Wallace. I'm a project consultant with HRP. Real excited to have Paul here today. We're really uh, in the big leagues now with somebody like Paul here to, to verify everything we've been saying all along, huh? Absolutely. We've just been joking around so far. Now it's now it's time for the real <laughs> stuff. <laughs> On this episode, we will be talking about the state of the science, specifically for PFOS remediation. Yeah, it's great uh, to have Paul here and, and Tom both with us right here. I know Tom's got a bunch of questions, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Paul, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about kind of different treatment technologies and, and different media, but let's let's take a step back and kind of for a lead in here and, and have you describe the evolution of, of PFOS remediation. I mean, it's not a, it's not a new concept. Talk a little bit about that. No, it's a great, great point, Tom. It is not a new concept. The more I think about it, it's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. When I first started in the uh, industry back in the late 1980s, we're working on different contaminants, but basically the same sort of initial treatment approach of pump and treat. So the idea being capture the liquid medium that may have PFAS or what other contaminants are, are in it, uh, treat it, and then discharge it. And in the case of other contaminants, you know, petroleum compounds, chlorinated solvents, the evolution was to move from that pump and treat sort of scenario into the adoption of in situ technologies. And those contaminants were particularly well suited for that sort of approach. This is a little bit of a different time though with PFAS. The ex situ technologies that are primarily being deployed right now are the main focus of work in the PFAS arena. And that's for a number of different reasons is that you know, in situ technologies, they're, they're a contact sport. And when you're dealing with PFAS compounds that are non-amenable to de biodegradation, where you have particularly low cleanup levels, uh, makes them very much of a challenge to address in situ. So the world we live in right now is it feels like we're kind of back to the pump and treat world, but there are technologies that are being advanced right now to eventually get to a point where the evolution will be towards PFOS destruction. That's kind of the holy grail in terms of where the industry overall is going to be headed in the next uh, number of years. I like the right. statement of, of it being a contact sport. I like that a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> is there any sort of time frame on when PFOS destruction would is realistically going to be achievable? I know we've seen studies where it's been destroyed in lab settings and things, but I think you're still kind of on on, on the back end of that uh, laboratory study mode. We are working with the several partners, to actually, wherein they are taking the concentrated still bottoms with highly concentrated PFAS waste and doing pilots tests on them right now. So I think the market will be such that those commercial technologies will scale up. 
there are some technologies that are quote unquote commercially available now, but it's all a question of you know economics uh, and what sort of waste stream that you're going to be treating. The short answer is I think you're going to see commercially available destruction technologies in the next two to three years. And that work is going to continue over the next 10 or so years. Right. And it's only going to get cheaper. You know, the more the more exactly. you make, cheaper it gets. That's all technology, That's really. And I think one of the keys to making them cheaper is that you are you deploy concentration technology on a small volume of waste. Obviously, it'd be very difficult to take a like a drinking water aquifer and try to, in a flow-through mode, deploy a destruction technology on that huge volume of PFAS-impacted right. liquids. You really need to concentrate it before you can destroy it. Similar to, or I guess not similar to how wastewater works, you know, where you UV expose wastewater coming through a large stream at once, you can do. Mm -hmm. But for PFAS, it would have to be much... Uh, a thinner stream, I'm not sure what a... A much smaller waste stream. So right, the idea, yeah. just at a high level, is that we are able to address the PFAS in the water by, first of all, separating it, separating the PFAS out of that water and reducing the volume of liquid that needs to be treated. Then we have technology which then can concentrate that amount of PFAS waste that you've then generated. And when you're dealing with a small concentrated waste, that's when destruction technologies are economic. Great intro there. I think there there's several different points to, that we're going to elaborate on yeah. um, within that. But you know, from a, I'm a hydrogeologist by training, so I, I look at mostly the the groundwater issues. And when we look at these samples and, and big, you know, diffuse plumes um, that you know impacting drinking water wells, surface water. I mean, the whole, you know, we look at the whole life cycle of, of PFAS and, and it's everywhere. When we start talking remediation, you know, back to your point of dealing with chlorinated solvents and dealing with uh, petroleum, you know, we have a source, we have a plume, you know, there's a discharge point or an end point to that plume and we can, you know, investigate that, delineate it and remediate it. But when we look at PFAS, how do we approach PFOS when it's everywhere? You know, we're we're not dealing with, you know, a single point source and a plume that we're trying to target. It's, you know, from an Air Force base perspective, it's there could be 45 sources on that base. Or, you know, even even municipalities have multiple sources. It's a great question, Tom. So uh, I go back to you know, back in the day when I was watching ER on television, you know, learn the word triage. What does that mean? And triage is really kind of taking, addressing the need that is most critical. And in many cases, that need is driven by the need to protect human health and the need to protect ecological receptors. So if you think of what the human health receptors might be, well, the primary pathway for a lot of these contaminants into humans will be through ingestion of drinking water. So if you have a contaminated drinking water aquifer where there's PFAS that is making their way through people's taps, et cetera, a lot of time the, the initial focus, the step one of the triage is to kind of protect those workers by maybe putting in a point of entry, not workers, those receptors by putting in a point of entry treatment system. It's almost like a water softener type system where 
uh, water will flow through different media before it goes into their taps or into their showers, et cetera. So that's kind of the first step in, in kind of breaking that exposure pathway. Beyond that, if you, Tom, you brought up the example of military installations, there are a number of cases where you have multiple point sources, but sometimes they coalesce or they result in a plume that's migrating off-site. So, um, you know, once you've got the initial receptors off-site taken care of, and maybe in some cases you're providing them bottled water, but then the next approach would be to put in place a system that's not going to continue that exposure to those folks. So what that might mean, uh, to your point as a hydrogeologist, Tom, might be putting in, uh, doing groundwater modeling, putting in place a hydraulic capture system to make sure, say, for example, that groundwater is not migrating further off the base and further continuing the aquifer. So basically, you put a pump and treat system in at the base perimeter in some cases where that uh, risk can be mitigated. So that kind of deals with the groundwater sort of scenario. But in many cases, you also have surface water impacts. And so you may have uh, you know, a flight line on a particular base or an airport or something like that where surface water drainage carries legacy contamination from historical fire training exercises or actual fire events through stormwater. And that can make its way into surface water bodies. So in some cases, the approach would be to treat surface water prior to it getting into that surface water body. So that would be kind of another step in the, the triage evaluation to figure out, you know, what is the most critical pathway that needs to be addressed? How do we sever that? And where most of the work is being done right now, Tom, in the kind of PFAS arena from a regulatory standpoint, pretty much everybody's in the CERCLA investigation phase, right? They're doing the remedial investigations, still trying to get their arms around, well, how big is this? How deep is this? What are the contaminants that are present? What are the regulatory standards and applicable requirements relative to those compounds? And I think you're gonna see on a parallel path, while these sites are being kind of further evaluated while regulatory criteria are being promulgated, you know, then you're going to see um, more definitive action on feasibility studies, remedial design, et cetera. Right now what's happening, it's, it's what they're calling in the circular world removal actions it can be a time critical removal action or just a removal non-time critical removal action and that's where you can put in place systems like uh, these pump and treat systems at a military base they're the the superfund law basically allows you to do that still within the framework of circla that's a very good point i think the you know the characterization kind of follows some of that that path too of you know we normally go source to down gradient, but in this case, I think it's it's almost reverse of where are your receptors? Where's the key, the, the, the key answers you need, and then you kind of can work back. Yeah, and that can generate some hesitancy um, in terms of implementing a remedy because, I mean, work with a lot of people that want a lot of certainty who want to understand that, well, how do I know that the system I'm putting in place is going to be the treatment system that can serve our needs today and it can also serve our needs for tomorrow. And that combined with, in many cases, an abs absence of promulgated standards can create a scenario where, you know, there's kind of the do nothing approach. Well, let's kind of wait and see what the regs come out. Let's wait until we fin our, finish our characterization. But in many cases, you don't need to finish that characterization to demonstrate that you have a risk to receptors that should perhaps be acted upon.
Yeah. Very good point. So we talked to, about the, the kind of how we've got here and, and you know the the approach to remediation. You know, I think one of the big questions, um, you know, when we, and, and PFOS is labeled the forever chemical for a reason, but from a uh, technology perspective, you know, why is it so hard to remediate? What's the what's the key? You know, with all the research and development, you know, what's the key to to destruction to capture? Um, yeah, what makes what makes it so hard to remediate? Just go to your first question in terms of destruction. It's not like you can uh, do in situ thermal or something like that, and you're going to break the carbon fluorine bond. That's what this comes down to. PFAS chemicals are a complex mixture of um, carbon fluorine atoms with different groups added on. And so they they can be incredibly complex structures, but at the root, it's the carbon fluorine bond that's the problem. And that is because that's the strongest bond in, in chemistry to be to have to overcome. So uh, the approach that's been taken, instead of trying to break that bond, the idea is, well, let's Let's leave the bonds intact. Let's remove them from the the medium that they're in, whether it's water, storm water, et cetera. So that makes it very much a challenge. Um, but what you basically end up with is media filtration is probably is the technology that's being adopted uh, pretty much across the board in terms of removing PFAS in an ex situ manner. There are technologies that can be used to sequester or immobilize. PFAS constituents um, on a particular site, uh, you're not removing them, you're not breaking them down, but you're immobilizing them. So going back to initial scenario where maybe migrating off-site, you know, that that could be part of a solution that's put in place to mitigate off-site risk. I, I think one of the things that we've learned in our company, we've been around since 2013, and we're dealing, uh, helping some major consumer manufacturers products. Um, consumer products manufacturers deal with PFAS, uh, some of which they have uh, basically designed and constructed themselves. We've learned that there is no one easy answer in terms of PFAS remediation. In many cases, you're dealing with a treatment train approach. Uh, We like to use ion exchange media uh, because we found that's very effective in removing PFAS from liquid media. But you do do end up with a waste product, and I, I can talk a little bit more about that. Um, but some of the other challenges that you have, you know, the big question is what sort of waste do you end up with? Uh, if you're looking for a sustainable solution that minimizes waste, you know, there are certain media that are more effective in treating PFAS that you don't have to use as much media. So you can um, factor that into your decision criteria when you're designing a system. So we look at, you know, what is the the client need in terms of waste generation? If the client is, you know, bent on zero waste, we can get there. We can get there by implementing a solution that may contain a a regenerable ion exchange media where you're not taking that PFAS waste and you're, you're not putting it in the landfill. You're regenerating the media, putting it back in place, and then you have the ability to destroy that PFAS waste. And so, as I mentioned prior, that's kind of the brave new world of, of where people are looking. And as an example of kind of the waste minimization approach, if that's important, we have a site in uh, 
New Hampshire, where we've treated, I think, 70 million gallons since 2018. All we've generated is 70 gallons of highly concentrated PFOS waste. Wow. So, yeah, it's a big concentration factor. And, you know, that makes it really interesting because that's the sort of volume that you can deploy a destruction technology on. Yeah. Is that, would that be 100% PFOS? I don't, I don't even know how that works. If you get to 70 gallons of per, yeah, per 70 million, that's... Yeah, what's the yeah, proof on it's, that? It's, the, it's, the, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's in the milligram per liter uh, sort of range. Yeah. So it, it and it basically it's a salty brine with really high PFAS concentrate. It looks like a really good IPA if you look at it visually. <laughs> so that's the sort of stuff that we're doing destruction technology on right now, uh, working with partners to figure out what's going to be the best solution for destruction, whether it's plasma or supercritical water oxidation or a number of technologies that are kind of on the forefront of technology of uh, evolution right now. Some of the other um, challenges that we have in the business is, well, there are only a couple of compounds or maybe a half dozen at most that are regulated currently. So right. there may be hesitancy on behalf of responsible parties to implement a solution based on you're measuring a very, very small subset of what could be the total PFAS problem that somebody may have. And so the hesitancy, do I put a solution to address those two compounds or do I wait for something that's going to address a broader range of chemicals? Right. And so, you know, it goes to the treatment train approach. You can, there's enough chemical tools in the toolbox, like top assay, for example, where you can kind of figure out what your mix of PFAS might be. And that, that is one important tool that we look at. And site-specific water chemistry is a, a really important driver too. There is no one-size-fits-all for PFAS remediation. So every site's different. We need to look at a number of things, including client goals, perspectives, regulatory criteria, in terms of determining what the right solution might be. Yeah, that's uh, you, you touched on it there at the end. That's one of the the things I hear a lot. The likelihood that you you know, adopt new chemicals to replace old chemicals, and then they ban those chemicals too, because it turns out that that's also PFOSs. Yeah. Right. Yeah, when you're talking, you know, approximately 10,000 chemicals, and like you said, we're six of them are regulated. I think the current list on six, method 1633 is what we're looking at, 40. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, that's right. Um, you know, we're we're scratching the surface, and the, the likelihood that we zeroed in on the two most toxic ones at the beginning is probably pretty low. So, right. you know, what's, what else is out there? What are they going to find in five years that, yeah. oh, by the way, this is even worse than PFOA and we haven't, you know, our treatment technology, this is just passing through. So I think, you know, it, it, it'll be interesting to see. And I know there's a lot of hesitation when, when you talk to people moving full scale with, you know, investigation remediation you know understanding what's on their site it's not regulated now but will it be that's right and i think adopting a conservative treatment approach that where you have say a proven technology like ion exchange that is known to be effective for the broad chemical pfos compounds i mean the priority has been on the longer chain compounds because they were the compounds that were most prevalently used in fire training exercises consumer products um, but I think, you know, if you keep open the door for the ability to treat other compounds, often with a pump and treat sort of approach, it's not like the question is, will ion exchange be effective in treating those other compounds? 
it will be effective, but you may just need to treat at a different flow rate. I mean, right now you pass water through a particular vessel using at a certain rate and, you know, and what that does is produces a certain amount of time or empty bed contact time during which the water is in contact with that media. So like with granular activated carbon, for example, you know, that's typically about 10 minutes. Uh, with ion exchange, you know, you're probably talking two and a half minutes to three minutes. The answer may be for ion exchange resin, for these other unknown compounds, it may just mean you change your flow rate so that you have a little bit longer residence time or empty bed contact time. With granule activated carbon, it's a bit more of a problem because some of these compounds simply don't stick to granule activated carbon. You don't have the ion exchange part of that uh, mechanism to help remove PFOS compounds. You, you, when you talk about the shorter chain compounds, that's a lot of a lot of results you see where it worked great, you know, 99.9% .9 removal on the longer chains, but it kind of some of these fall apart on the on the smaller chains. So exactly uh, right. Short chains. Um, so you know we've talked a lot about water treatment. Um, so what are the options? You know, kind of the state of the science for you know dealing with with um, soil treatment and you know you, you've mentioned a lot about groundwater and drinking water but mm -hmm. um, you know kind of go through by media maybe you know what's on the currently being used or on the horizon of, of treatment approaches. Sure yeah I'd be happy to Tom so if we talk about soil treatment it's been shown that you can pretty easily strip PFAS from the soil media. Difficult to do perhaps in uh, an in-situ setting, although there is a technology called smoldering um, combustion where um, the, you're using another carbon source to basically fuel uh, underground uh, combustion of these products. And some researchers have shown they've been getting to the, the sort of cr critical temperatures where you can remove um, PFAS and destroy those bonds. On an ex situ basis, uh, there have been a number of studies that we participated in. One was at Peterson Air Force Base where um, we removed soil from a former fire training area and subject subjected it through basically a soil washing process. You know, <laughs> we're going back to the 80s again, right? We talked about soil washing for petroleum, et cetera, uh, land farming in the past. So soil washing can be very effective uh, by segregating size fractions and then taking those and basically uh, stripping those compounds off using pretty benign inert liquids. You can add surfactants to actually help augment that. But the removal efficiencies that we're seeing in some of our initial work in the, are in the plus 80, 85% level, which, I mean, these were that was a pilot study that we did um, at Peterson in, and that, that's pretty darn good for a pilot study. So we're actually going full scale right now on a soil removal project, soil washing project at uh, Ileson Air Force Base, where we're supporting the Air Force, working with uh, another engineering firm who they basically handle the soil part of it and we handle the water part of it. So the idea is in a closed loop manner, you take that liquid and you process the soil subject them to the liquids and remove the PFAS into the liquid medium. Then what we'll do is similarly in a closed loop basis, we'll process that water to remove PFAS as we go along. 
And then at the end of the soil washing project, we basically take that, um, we reconfigure the system slightly to be able to get to really, really low cleanup levels and discharge water on site. So soil washing, uh, it's a proven technology. It's been around a long time. Uh, I think one of the presentations I've done, I actually show, uh, you know, miners in the Yukon doing soil washing. So um, it's been around a long time. It's a proven technology for soil. And uh, beyond that, you know, there is work that's underway right now for landfill leachate that we've been working in. Um, and one of the technologies that we're particularly excited about dealing with some of those landfill leachates, I mean, as you can imagine, Leachates can be a real witch's brew in terms of the what's in the liquid. It can vary by site. It can vary by time. And there's a technology where they call it foam fractionation, but what they've done is repurposed protein skimmers from the aquarium industry. And it's kind of like air sparging in a controlled fashion where it's ex situ air sparging where you basically pass air through this column, these fractionator vessels, Call them reactors, and uh, it's amazing the amount of PFAS that will come off when you basically introduce air into that water. The PFAS like to stick to the air-water interface, so they will basically grab onto the bubbles that are moving up through the column, and you can actually see PFAS, the foam that comes out of the top, very, very highly concentrated. So we see some scenarios where that could be actually the treatment step for removing PFAS and other cases where it can be part of a pretreatment step to remove PFAS and then perhaps further polishing of the, the water down the, down the uh, treatment train. So there's a lot of uh, focus on foam fractionation right now. Work primarily right now is being directed towards uh, those shorter chain, those pesky shorter chain compounds we talked about earlier, Tom. So, I mean, I think the percent removal for PFOS and PFOA are like in the 98, 99%. And percent removal is great, but will it get you to the part per quadrillion cleanup levels? So often right. it, you're, there is that treatment train approach to get to the required cleanup levels. That's great info. It's, uh, there's a lot, definitely a lot going on. And it's nice to see, like you said, there's not a one size fits all approach for resin or, or you know some of the every site's a little bit different so it's it's nice to have more tools in the toolbox as we continue to develop these uh, these treatment processes and and technologies um, and I do appreciate the fact that you know we're, we're finding ways to take stuff repurpose stuff and make it work for PFOS where I think the you know some of the initial thoughts on PFOS was it's going to be new technology, but it's it's adapting what we already know. So that's that's a positive for sure. Um, and then we've we've talked uh, kind of around this, but uh, you know specifically getting to the point of how do we avoid just moving PFOS around? You know, we've talked about uh, consolidating it, but you know we still at the end of the day have PFOS. So how do we avoid moving waste from, you know, the, the days of excavating and putting in the landfill, I think are done when we talk about PFOS in general, because of the problems it creates, the legacy problems that, that it creates. So um, you know, talk a little bit about that. Sure. So I think if you are, are were to install, 
install some soil borings, uh, monitoring wells in an area where there had been a surface release, then you're going to have soils that are impacted with PFAS. And then the question is, so what do you do with those soils? Often for soil washing, you know, there's economy of scale. Do you mobilize a huge unit for, you know, a couple of drums of soil cuttings? Probably not. So I, I think for soil, I, I think the idea is that you know, you're probably going to containerize it, you're going to drum the waste, and you're probably going to send it to a containerized landfill. That's probably going to be the best approach for now. Um, certainly, the DOD has a moratorium on incineration because they don't want any, you know, unintended consequences associated with an incomplete combustion of PFAS. So I think for for soil, that's smaller scale. I think you're probably looking at drumming up material um, and landfilling. I think in terms of liquid wastes. I think if there are a couple of different waste streams that would be primarily coming out of that. And so if you look at, say, granule activated carbon or ion exchange media, there are ways where you can, um, you can actually destroy the media. So you can, uh, I know there's talk regeneration of carbon media. Uh, we actually have uh, proprietary technology where we can regenerate ion exchange media. And by doing that regeneration process of the ion exchange media, we, as I mentioned, we highly concentrate PFAS waste. And when you can pair that with destruction, well, that's, that's where you avoid moving PFAS waste around. You basically have no waste that would be leaving the site. So what's happening now is the example I mentioned before, the waste is being kind of containerized. There's 70 gallons of it. At this particular Air Force base, there's no regulatory driver dictating placement of that material or no, you know, 90 day RICRA requirement dictating moving that site. So moving that material. So right now we're using time to our advantage and uh, we have the, a lot of work going on our R&D lab in North Carolina working to find the best destruction technology that can be deployed because ultimately that's what we see the future of PFAS is and so that we're not handing down this legacy of contaminants that we've just kind of moved from one place to the other and then you know passing it from generation to the other uh in so doing do you think there will be language soon on what you have to do with those 70 drums or do you think uh you're you're allowed to sit on it and put it in its raiders of the lost art warehouse yeah i think you're going to see designation uh of the PFAS being a hazardous substances sooner rather than later, you know, probably the next two or three years being designated a hazardous waste. You're probably talking three or four or five years, depending on, you know, who's in Congress. Right. <laughs> but uh, so we're still a ways down the road, but, you know, you can plan for that. And one of the ways that we're talking to clients about positioning for tomorrow is say, if you, you weren't sure how large your PFAS problem is, you could put in place like a single use ion exchange system that's smaller in scale, but have the ability to convert that to say a regenerable ion exchange system down the road should your circumstances change and you find you have 40 point sources at your installation, you can, you can change that to regeneration ready is what we're calling it. So I think you can find your solution for today, but position yourself for tomorrow by kind of keeping your options open you know the last thing i kind of had on my list and, and we talked a little bit about you know what's next and it's kind of the timeline for that and the, the big one you hit on was destruction technologies but i think the 
on the horizon, maybe even beyond destruction, is there anything else? The uh, Department of Defense is funding, they have a separate funding stream right now for uh, projects using in situ um, remediation. So it'll be very interesting to see how that that plays out. And you know, going back to the contact sport analogy, whether that can really kind of get it all. Because um, these seem to be pretty mobile compounds, and um, you know, if you don't get it all, it's going to find its way somewhere else down the road. So, yeah, destruction. I think that is the holy grail in terms of where we want to be to mitigate that. Unless somebody can come up with a way to basically mitigate the health effects associated by with PFAS by changing their chemical nature, you know, catalyzing them with something else, um, that may be a way. But uh, I think primarily right now we're looking at foam fractionation to really knock down high concentrations of PFAS that paired with uh, destruction technology of the highly concentrated PFAS wastes. Has there been any progress on labeling these, you know, how we've got 100 versions of PFAS that we have kind of a legal precedent to show how dangerous those specific chemicals are? And we know there's 9,900 other ones. What is the rate of cataloging the rest of these? And when do you think we'll have more official information on the severity of toxicity on these lesser known PFOS particles? Yeah, I think I think there's a good amount of data that's been generated on the ones that we talk about most frequently, PFOS, PFOA, but there are other constituents, shorter chain compounds like PFBA that appear to have some uh, health effects that um, some of the recently promulgated uh, cleanup standards in some states are designed to address. So I, I think that's going to be an ongoing effort, and uh, I think there's going to be a long, long period of debates as to the relative toxicity of these things. But I think what we may end up is where these things uh, end up being regulated as a class of chemicals. That that may be the approach that needs to be taken, given the inherent variability of these chemicals, how that would translate into uh, individual standards for those compounds. Uh, I think given what we're seeing in the variability of the clean, you know, interim cleanup or provisional cleanup levels that are out there when you may range for, you know, into the part per, uh, you know, quadrillion. Like, yeah, part per quadrillion on one end, then you may have 600,000 parts per quadrillion. That's a pretty broad range. So how do you, right. you know, how do you take a total, how do you take a total number and say, well, that's going to be your standard when some are clearly more uh, potential risk to than other compounds? Yeah, it seems like they're going to have something like the benzoylpyrene toxic equivalence calculation, yeah. where you you base it on if it's, if if PFOA is the most toxic, um, you know something like that, where you you look at it from the class of chemicals, and you know that's how you get the standard. But I agree. I mean, you know, we we see some of the states in the Northeast, you know, have a a sum just a sum total of compounds um you know i think i and i'm going to get my states wrong but i think it's vermont that's five compounds total of 20 parts per billion um there's there's states like that that are, are already starting to kind of break it up uh to some of the key ones so it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays into the remediation side of things yeah, and in some cases, there to your point, Tom, they're in some cases saying uh, total or individually. 
for those six compounds, I believe, in Massachusetts. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that. That was another another state as well. Shut well, up. So, yeah, I, I'd just like to say I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, folks. Uh, I've worked my entire career in the engineering world, doing the same sort of jobs you guys do on a day-to-day -day basis. So uh, I worked for some of the larger engineering firms, some of the smaller ones, and moved to work for ECT two, two years ago because I really wanted to be in the PFOS world. And you know, I commend firms like yours who are taking an active role in education and outreach and keeping its customers appraised and looking out for their best interests. Well, it's been great having you, Paul. I think we've had some smart people on this podcast before, but I think I just learned more in 30 minutes about PFOS <laughs> than I have and the combined history of, of P3 so far. That was great info. I, I really appreciate you joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And hopefully all of you out there have learned just as much as we did on this episode. Remember, if you are not subscribed already to the PFOS Pulse, head over to hrpassociates.com slash PFOS and get subscribed today. Paul, once again, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. No problem. We'll talk to you all later. Okay, bye now. See ya. Stay safe, everybody. Okay. Thanks, guys. All right. Excellent.